Sorry, let me re-say, re- rephrase that. <laughs> <laughs> that's, okay. that's a, sounds like a common phrase, but I don't think it's usually said in quite that way. No, it's not. <laughs> okay. Hi, everybody. I'm Matt. And I'm Steve. And this is Marvel Reread Club. All right, Steve. Hi, how are you? Doing all right. I'm trying to keep all the balls I'm juggling in the air at the same time, and I'm doing close to keeping that happening. So one way or the other, I'll take a break for an hour or so here and talk about some comics. How about yourself? I'm doing well. I am about to leave for New York City for a trip. Unfortunately, I did not time it well. I'm going to miss my son's final baseball game, and I'm going to miss what might be the end of the Braves season, uh, which I have been watching with my son. If I were in town this weekend, I suspect we would watch the ignominious defeat of the Braves for the, (laughs) although that may happen tonight. And I can see his final baseball game. I've planned it poorly, but I'm looking forward to my trip. I'm going to see some good Broadway shows. I'm going to have a good time. But I wish I had not planned it for this weekend. And then I've been dealing with all sorts of other things. But we don't need to get into that. We should get into some comics. Yes, we should. And just to let people know, once again, we are changing up the order on these things from what we had done originally so that we can have some of the good books and the not as good books more evenly distributed between the episodes. But in our last two episodes, I like the way we did it, but we divided them up in such a way where the first episode was an hour and the second episode was an hour and a half. So we're experimenting around some more and we're going to try five books in the first episode and four books in the second episode for this month. All right. So Spider-Man. With his Aunt May gravely ill in the hospital, Spider-Man fights as never before. Man on a rampage. And on the cover, we see Spider-Man rampaging around, ripping stuff apart, and everybody running in fear from him. We find it very quickly in this issue that Dr. Octopus is the master planner, but they don't put Dr. Octopus on the cover. Uh, You know, essentially, they have a four-issue Dr. Octopus storyline here, and he never makes it on the cover. He's not going to make it on the cover in the next issue either. They seem to have decided Dr. Octopus doesn't sell books. They've decided just watching Spider-Man tear up a staircase is worth more money than putting Dr. Octopus on the cover. It's a little strange. Yeah. We start out with the undersea lair that he has built for himself. Uh, And we are back to the credits saying script and editing by Stan Lee, plot and illustration by Steve Ditko, lettering and kibitzing by Artie Simak. That was interesting. We just had one month off from Steve getting plotting credit on Spider-Man and Doctor Strange. And now he's back this month. He's got plotting credit again. I I don't know if that was... uh, you know, suddenly Stan deciding, why am I doing this? I can't stand it for a month. <laughs> and then Steve fighting back. Or if it was just a mistake on both books, I don't know. We shall never know. Although I do wonder if toning down the bombastic, silly credits that he usually does might have been at Steve Ditko's behest. That I don't think that he ever really liked the whole like, hey, we're just a bunch of chums in the clubhouse doing these comics sort of act that uh, Stanley liked to do. So keeping right. the one little silly bit for Artie Simek down there at the bottom. You know, I can't help but think that that might have been something to try to placate Steve Ditko. We find out, yes, that the master planner is actually Dr. Octopus, so that will become, obviously, a big deal later. Peter and Betty are still not doing well together. Peter is still just trying to give her the cold shoulder. 
Ned Leeds comes over and talks to him at one point and is like, you know, don't be rude to her. And then he actually shoves Ned Leeds violently enough that books fall off the shelves in J. Jonah Jameson's office. Pete's really not in a good place here. Well, and unfortunately, Pete is saying here, I've got to make her hate me. A clean break is the best thing for all of us. And, you know, I like this issue. This is many ways a great issue, but I hate this. This ruins the issue for me. Like, it's just terrible. This whole like, oh, I have to treat her awfully in order to save her feelings. Obviously, we've had a lot of that in Iron Man. It doesn't make him likable. It doesn't make her likable for putting up with it. I just hate this element of this issue. You know, I guess I just see it as he has the emotional intelligence of a 19 year old. Right. You do some dumb stuff, particularly in relationships when you're that age. But Tony Stark does the same thing, isn't he a lot older? Oh, no, he's he's a dick. But I'm saying (laughs) (laughs) Peter Parker, I give a little bit more uh, leeway to. Pete gets the news from the doctors that Aunt May might very well be dying and that what she's dying from is some sort of radioactivity in the blood, at which point Pete remembers that he gave her a blood transfusion in issue number 10. Now, I honestly don't remember that, but obviously I don't remember that either. I was reading this and I'm like, I don't remember him giving her a blood transfusion, but okay, I'm going to trust that I've just forgotten it. Pete realizes his own blood is probably what is killing Aunt May, and he is just utterly distraught. He is... (laughs) It's hard to communicate just how anguished Steve Ditko is able to show Peter Parker as being just from the drawings. And then he lashes out. He actually destroys a desk in their house out of rage. So, yeah, once again, he is not in a good place right now. He suddenly thinks, oh, you know who knows a lot about, like, blood stuff, especially stuff that has to do with animals? The lizard, whom I rescued a while ago. So let me see if I can find him. So once again, he's just uh, frantically harassing everyone he can get on the phone to uh, try to get to him. He then steals some of Aunt May's blood and heads to Dr. Connor's office. Dr. Connor says, I'm going to need this particular new serum called ISO 36, and they've only got it at this you know, university lab in the West Coast or something like that. And we need to get it overnighted, and that's going to be super expensive. So Spider-Man's like, all right, that's what we need. That's what we need. So let me go get it. He pawns all his science stuff, then shows back up with the money and is helping Dr. Connors develop whatever is going to be mixed with this ISO 36 or whatever it was. And Dr. Connors notes that he seems to know his way around a laboratory. It's so strange to have Kirk Connors show up in a storyline without ever becoming the lizard. Come on, man. It's right there. Have him accidentally get turned into the lizard and give Spider-Man something else to play for. It's fine. I don't mind that it's not there. It's just given the long history of Kirk Connors being consulted for seemingly innocuous things in Spider-Man comics and then unexpectedly becoming the lizard, it's just very strange to not have that here. Well, I kind of like it. Anyway, so this ISO 36 is apparently itself a radioactive thing. That's the kind of stuff that Doc Ock is trying to amass. So he sends somebody to the airport to steal the serum from the guy who's brought it at basically the expense of everything that Pete had to pawn. And it's all now gone and the serum's gone and 
he's basically back at square one, just filled with rage and despair. We've got an interesting little scene where he's swinging into the Daily Bugle offices to try to track down Frederick Foswell, thinking that he might have some more information, and just happens to run into Betty Brant. She's the one who sees him. And I find this an interesting juxtaposition here. On page nine, panel three, we see Betty Brant just looking disgusted and just repulsed by Spider-Man because she blames Spider-Man for killing her brother. And Pete is thinking to himself, when I see her that way, so fragile, so helpless, how I long to take her in my arms. I'm looking, I'm like, do you not know how to read body language, buddy? Because that is not fragile and helpless. That is, I despise you with every ounce of my being. Once again, he's a yes. teenager. What does he know? I just wrote in my notes, how I want to take you in my arms. No, dude. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So anyway, uh, Spider-Man tracks down Frederick Falswell and gets some information from him. You would think that, you know, last issue, he did get information about the Master Planner from Frederick Falswell, but Frederick Falswell was in disguise at the time as Patch, so he shouldn't know that Falswell has information about the Master Planner. You would, now heaven forbid Spider-Man ever figure out anybody's disguise and figure <laughs> out that Patch was Frederick Falswell. That would make this make sense. No, heaven forbid, Spider-Man will never be able to figure out anybody's secret identity. Well, the, the way I see this is the reason that Patch had all this information is because that's part of how Frederick Foswell is doing his undercover reporting that he is theoretically writing articles about in the Daily True. Bugle. So then Spider-Man would be like, ah, here's this guy who's on the master planner beat. Let me see what he can tell me. Anyway, he's just sure. like, look, I have no idea where the guy's base is or anything about him. All I know is some things about his operation. So Spider-Man then just goes on a rampage in the underworld trying to find anyone who can tell him anything. He's getting nothing from anybody, but he is really getting out some of his rage <laughs> as he goes yeah. through this stuff. Let's see. How does he finally find this thing? I guess it's just, is this just by pure luck? Yeah. The seconds faithfully tick by until blasted to another blind alley. This place is deserted. I'm running out of places to search. So presumably he had some reason, you know, he's been yeah. getting information from each thing as he goes. So he had right. some reason to suspect that this blind alley might lead him there. And indeed he finds a trapdoor hidden in the ground. But yeah, and, we're, we sort of miss the part where we find out whatever <laughs> led him here. Right. And then we get to see Spider-Man descending into not quite sewers, but uh, certainly the underground sewer type area down here. And then he's able to actually make it to a bunch of the Master Planner's goons. We then once again just have fantastic fight scenes where Spider-Man is taking on a whole room full of these purple clad goons. The Master Planner is like, OK, good. This is fantastic. He's here in my underwater lair. I can lead a trap for him and then uh, I can finally take care of him. Spider-Man finally learns that it's Dr. Octopus. They once again just have a spectacular fight scene at the end of which Dr. Octopus escapes. The undersea lair has been damaged to the point that water is starting to drip in through the ceiling because the place is going to collapse. The ISO 36 is out of his reach, and he now has a dozens of tons piece of machinery that is right over him that doesn't, hasn't hurt him, but has him completely trapped. And this is where we leave it. And this is setting up what is arguably the 
pinnacle of the Lee Ditko Spider-Man run, the scene where he gets himself out of this in the next issue. So it's kind of exciting to see, you know, to see the setup here, knowing what we're going to be getting next issue. Overall, I really like this issue. I, I absolutely hear what you say about Peter Parker being a dick. But at the same time, I, you know, like I said, I, I read this as he's a teenager and he just doesn't know how to handle this stuff very well. Yeah, I have a little bit more patience with him than I do with Tony. Yeah, <laughs> Tony should know better. Yes, I agree. I I give him more credit than Tony. You know, even the way he's acting is fine. It was just the thought bubble. You know, I've got to make her hate me. A clean break is the best thing for all of us. Like I'm just sick and tired of that logic showing up in Marvel comics. Other than that, this is an amazing issue. The Master Planner storyline is just great. You really get the sense with both Spider Man and. Doctor Strange, where they've had these long storylines that come to their penultimate chapters this month and then, you know, are just white hot intensity on both books and then both reach very satisfactory conclusions next month. And then Dicko has like four more issues to go in which he sort of just spins his wheels on both books where you have these just incredible two-part finales happening this month and next month in both of his books. And then not as impressive for the several issues after that until he finally decides to leave Marvel altogether. But this is absolutely amazing work. And except for that one thing I didn't like, this is a beautiful issue, just very intense. We don't know that Dr. Octopus gets away. The machine falls on him too. And he's saying, everything's falling on top of us. We'll be killed. And then Spider-Man says, I can't see Doc Ock. Don't know what happened to him. So he may or may not get away. That's a good point. The sense of the weight of this machinery on top of Spider-Man is just fantastic. Just the heaviness of it. And this is where it's useful to have Dicko both penciling and inking himself. Really does a great job with giving objects weight and value. Let's go and move on to Daredevil number 12. Let's do it. So right away on the cover, we're like, what? What the hell? Kazar, Cyclops <laughs> in a savage land. We have Daredevil being menaced by a pirate while Kazar looks on from above. With science fiction guns. With science fiction guns. It's funny, this issue is thought of as the issue where Stanley is joined by John Romita. And indeed, Stanley makes a big deal about that. Well, I should say Story Stanley, it says, and introducing the matchless artistic wizardry of Marvel's newest and most eagerly awaited illustrator, the inimitable John Romita. And that's great. And John Romita is amazing in this issue, even if he's not the best fit for Daredevil. But then we get to the other hidden credit that you might not notice, layouts, Jack Kirby. So we have Jack Kirby being associated with Daredevil for the first time, other than Daredevil casting in Fantastic Four. And really, this issue, as much as it's remembered for the debut of being John Romita, is really, in my mind, all about Kirby. This is Kirby doing the layouts is presumably doing co-potting or solo-potting, depending on how you want to give him credit, depending on what you think of what was going on in the early Marvel Universe. And this whole issue doesn't feel like a Romita issue, doesn't feel like a Stanley issue. It feels like a Kirby issue. I was actually looking at this and thinking I can barely see the Kirby in here at all. You know, it feels like Romita was putting so much of his, uh, you know, putting so much of his own stink on it that I could personally, except for a few individual shots, didn't really see the Kirby. So that's interesting that you and I had completely different takes on that. Yes, I see a lot of Kirby in this. I'm sorry, you said stink. Did you mean that negatively or did you mean that? Uh... 
I, I, you know what that, that that's something that I remember. I heard uh, Ray Charles was talking about his cover of America the Beautiful and talking about how he really put his own stink on it, and that was him talking about his own stuff. Anyway, so Daredevil is leaving Nelson and Murdoch behind. He is leaving Foggy and Karen in the window, and they are both thinking farewell. And he is thinking that I'm leaving perhaps forever. And <laughs> you get to a really dumb thing. You know, just change the number here. Matt goes home to his apartment. He has decided, apropos of absolutely nothing, that he is going to take a cruise around the world, which, you know, (laughs) is what blind people do when they quit their jobs. And he's basically going like, I want to have an adventure and I want to justify people buying this comic book. So I will go on a cruise around the world. It makes no sense. And then he realizes he's got four minutes to make it across town. Now, now keep in mind, he is dressed as Matt Murdock. So in four minutes, he's got to change from Matt Murdock into Daredevil and then get there and change from Daredevil back into Matt Murdock. And he's got four minutes to make it all the way across town. Now, I'm sorry, if you are Monica Rambo, if you are the Captain Marvel of the 1980s, maybe that would work because she has the ability to turn into a beam of light. And cross town. Even then, it would be pretty hard to change clothes twice in four minutes. But she has really turned into a beam of light. They should not have said four minutes. They should have said 20 minutes or something. Yes. Daredevil gets cross town. He gets on the ship. He is riding the ship out on the ocean when suddenly pirates come up. Pirates with an actual three-masted sailing ship come up. And we meet a new pirate. Marvel already has pirate villains they could have used, but they invent a new pirate called the Plunderer. Now, the only way I know of the Plunderer is I know enough to go, the Plunderer, that's Kesar's brother. And indeed, we have the Plunderer here, and we're told that his last name is Plunder, which is where he gets his name, and that he is a former British peer. And then we have Kesar show up, but it is never said in this issue that they are brothers. Presumably, that will come up next issue. That would be very bizarre if we get through this whole storyline without it coming up. Daredevil fights the pirates, and then we get one of the most shocking panel transitions in Marvel history. We've already got Daredevil taking a scenic cruise, finding pirates, which is strange enough. And then suddenly we cut to the Savage Land, where Kazar is fighting a Tyrannosaurus Rex. <laughs> what could possibly justify that transition? And then Kazar sees an island. He sees Swamp and attacking an island. And we get something that is a very Kirby panel to me, which is the bottom panel on page nine. Yes. This one, I will grant you, this is one of the panels where I was like, this seems like something out of Commandy, Last Boy on Earth or something like that. Um, (laughs) One thing that I find really, really weird about this is that these are like gigantic logs that make up these boats. But then each one of them has a central, larger log that then has a smaller log protruding from the middle of it. That's one of the things where I'm guessing that, you know, John Romita saw the basic sort of layout. He's like, what am I supposed to do with this? Uh, sure, we'll do this. Why not? KSR sees that the Swamp Men are attacking a Skull Island, and then we cut back to the butter has set up a plank to make all of the people running the <laughs> ship walk the plank. Presumably, the ship did not already have a plank. He brought a plank with him, I'm guessing. I don't know. Or maybe he just uh, built a plank. Why did I not notice that the first time I read through this? <laughs> There's a plank on the cruise ship. <laughs> That's awesome. Okay. You have to keep discipline on a cruise ship somehow. Maybe you just have a plank and, you know, there's always the risk that people are going to be made to walk the plank. Daredevil is taken in by the plunder who likes the cut of his jib and it's like, hey, I'm going to work together. They then turn the three-masted sailing ship into a big metal submarine, which is a little unbelievable. 
And they go like, hey, now let's go to the Savage Land. Let's go to Skull Island in the Savage Land. And it is still extremely unclear whether the Savage Land is just an above-air part of Antarctica or is in an underworld kingdom where presumably the Earth has an internal sun, which is usually an element of these underworld Savage Land kingdoms in places like the Poesidar Edgar Rice Burroughs novels or the DC Scartaris setting because indeed they take their submarine down to the bottom of the ocean and then through some tunnels and then bring it back up and it's in the Savage Land. So it implies that they're going to the center of the earth again. Daredevil ends up finding Kazar for no reason. <laughs> he can see Kazar's a good guy and then they just start fighting and it just doesn't make any sense. Kazar either kidnaps Daredevil or saves him. It's not exactly clear. We get a panel that shows up in the Marvel No Prize book where Zabu normally doesn't have a tail, but on the bottom of page 18, he has a tail. And so they singled that out for approbation in the Marvel No Prize book. Then Kazar ends up fighting a gigantic man-eating plant while Daredevil is menaced by Magor, last of the deadly ape men. And that is the world's craziest issue. I don't know about the world's craziest issue. I mean, just remember Avengers number one. Yes, that was also a crazy <laughs> issue. But this is... One of the most bizarre comics that Marvel has published. What does any of this have to do with Daredevil? This would have made more sense as an issue of Iron Man or Captain America or Submariner or Hulk or anything other than Daredevil. Daredevil surely has to have some sort of thing. And whatever his thing is, this is not his thing. However, the art with Carvia and Romita is excellent. And yes. this is bodes well for this book to have such an excellent artist here. I'd forgotten that Kirby came on the book with Romita. And now that I realize that this issue makes so much more sense. <laughs> You're right. It is a Kirby craziness kind of issue, isn't it? I think Kirby loved the Savage Land when the Savage Land showed up in X-Men and he just wants to go back. And somehow he's got to rope somebody into going to the Savage Land. And Kazar won that lottery. It is a crazy issue. It absolutely is. And uh, so one thing about John Romita and about Joe Sinnott that I have been thinking about lately is that, you know, when we were reading comics in the 80s, I was not the biggest fan of them. Either no. one of them, really. Both of them felt just very smooth. They had this old-fashioned look, you know, a very brush-oriented, very, you know, as brushes as opposed to pens, and just everything felt a little soft and old-fashioned. And part of that is, that's not the style that was popular at the time, but part of it is, I just really like this stuff better than the stuff he was doing in the 80s. Yeah. You know, it could be that as artists get older, they tend to fall back on the same sort of shortcuts and tropes and everything as they do, and so most comics artists tend to get a little less interesting when they uh, get to their later years. Not all of them, but many of them. Uh, and I, I sort of felt that way with Ramita and with Sinat, that they sort of you know hit an autopilot eventually, which I don't blame them for. <laughs> I mean, you know, yeah. Who doesn't want to do that? Anyway, yeah, so let me run through some of the things I noticed here. When Matt is leaving, Karen is pining for him, and she thinks to herself, if only you could have seen me, seen the love light in my eyes, but you never knew as though blind people can have no way of knowing whether or not somebody likes them because they can't see them. <laughs> yes. I remember being in college or just being a single man going like, oh, I've got such a huge crush on this person, but they don't know. They'll never know. And then eventually realizing as I got older, they know. They know. They can guess. My emotions were not as much of a mystery as I thought they were. I think Matt knew Karen, and you would have known if he 
felt I guess he did sort of feel the same way. Anyway, emotions are not as much of a mystery as we like to think. I have the emotional intelligence to know that I never knew when somebody liked me. (laughs) (laughs) Matt has a watch. And it says, but then as his hypersensitive fingers touch the face of his ticking watch, and then he's like, oh, I have only five minutes. And I was thinking, okay, I could see like using his radar sense to see where the hands are, but what's up with this? And I posted something about that on our social media, and a lot of people started getting on me like, you do know there are watches for blind people, right? Like the crystal flips up and you can actually touch the hands and know what time it is. Presumably, there's little action lines that are just to the right of the watch would be him snapping the crystal shut again. Although I think it would have been better if it had been open if that was what they were getting to in the first place. But one way or the other, mea culpa, I have now learned some things. And thank you, everybody who who educated me. One thing I do notice also is that when he leaves to go to his cruise ship, he swings out his window And it's clear that his curtains are literally blowing out the open window. Then he just leaves. So supposedly he is heading on a cruise around the world (laughs) with his windows open. Oh, yeah. And then I just always find it strains credulity when a character is thousands of miles away from their home base and then has to turn into their superhero identity. You know, you can get away with that maybe yeah. once. Right? <laughs> well, there went your one time. You can do that, buddy. Uh, oh, wait, you already used up your one time when you were in Lichtenbad or whatever. So, uh, nope, cat's out of the bag now. Overall, I really like this. Daredevil has been adrift since basically the second issue <laughs> uh, to a large extent. Yeah. Wally Wood kind of got it going, but it never really was able to take advantage of Wally Wood's talents. Uh, And I don't think Wallywood's heart was really in it as much. Uh, But John Romita really seems to be throwing his all into this. And for that matter, Jack Kirby. Overall, I'm really happy that we're getting an artist who really wants to be here. Certainly when Romita gets a chance to move to Spider-Man, he ditches Daredevil and never looks back. I don't think he loves Daredevil, but I think that he is giving it his all. And that is nice, more so than what was for his final couple issues. Yes. So... Let's do Journey into Mystery with the Mighty Thor. And we have a bit of a fake out on the cover here. It says, Enter Hercules. Yeah, we do. Yeah, it says, Enter Hercules, the glory and the grandeur. We have met Hercules in the previous Thor annual. This is the first time he's shown up in the regular numbered comics, but he only shows up for like a couple of panels. And it's just sort of a little interlude that's setting up next issue. Next issue is really Enter Hercules. <laughs> but, you know. Yeah, it's really unfair. It's a real tease. Hercules takes up most of the cover and he just makes a cameo appearance inside. And, you know, they even the issue ends with saying next issue, Hercules. Like, yes, right. next issue, Hercules, not this issue. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, We've got story by Stan the Man Lee, penciling by Jack King Kirby. Now, is this the first time they've used that particular juxtaposition, Stan the Man Lee, Jack King Kirby? That may be. I think you may have spotted something there. I mean, they might have used those two terms individually before, but I think this is the first time they've put them together in a way that will become iconic as we go through the next few years. Delineation by Vince the Prince Coletta and lettering by Artie Sugarlips Symek. I got to say, you know, now that we have and Fantastic Four chosen on inking Jack Kirby, that has made Thor 10 times as painful to have Coletta inking Kirby 
yeah, we're doing them in a different order now on our podcast, but I still am reading them in alphabetical order. And to go directly from Sinan inking Kirby on Fantastic Four to Kata inking Kirby and Thor, like just god-awful inking throughout this entire issue. Just Thor's eyes on the bottom of page two. Talk about the world's simplest inking job. You just have to do a line and a dot, and he can't do a line and a dot. And they just look awful. These are not the panels that I was thinking of when I think of how poorly this issue looks. I will point them out as we go. There are some doozies. Okay. So we start out with a a humorous throwaway scene. Thor is reading a newspaper by a newsstand, and I notice they have little photo stats of actual Marvel comics from this month on the newsstand. Everybody's on the street is like, oh my goodness, it's Thor. Uh, a man at one point thinks if he could sing, he'd be a smash with that crazy hair. And I don't really think of the long hair like Thor has as being big among musicians for another year or two, but I could be wrong. So this would have been late 65. Would anyone have hair quite that long? Or are they just referring to, hey, lots of these people have big mops of hair at this point? Do you know? I think the Beatles were perceived as having long hair at this point, even though we right. now see in retrospect their hair wasn't very long yet. I think there was still this idea of any hair longer than a crew cut was crazy. <laughs> Let's just lump them all in together. Thor is ready to leave this group uh, after hearing more about the demon. Uh, Yeah, so Thor is uh, done interacting with the crowd and is about to swing off, and he actually says out loud, stand clear, it is time for me to swing my hammer. And this cop comes up and says, oh, no, you don't. Hold it, fella. This is the law. He's harassing Thor about all this. Do you have a license to give a public demonstration in the street? It's like, license? I have no license. I am Thor. I don't care if you're Mother Hubbard. You're not going to do any hammer swinging on my beat, mister. So uh, you're not allowed to just swing your hammer around on the streets of New York. Just, you know, take note. So he has to take the elevator up. And anyway, so that was just a whole apropos of nothing fun little thing. We then have what should be a fantastic splash page on page four of Thor flying down the canyons of New York from below. It is less than overwhelming because of the final execution of the art. Thor finds that Jane has been getting into worse condition. If we remember correctly, she had escaped from the reporter, is it Harris Hobbs? Harris Hobbs, that's correct. Yeah. She had escaped from him when he was acting as a hooded goon by setting off a gas explosion, and that did injure her, apparently, and she is in the hospital. Thor thinks that she is had not major inj- injuries and should be doing well. Apparently, she's getting worse. And so he's like, oh, my God, I got to figure out what to do. We find the demon is still running amok in Asia and, you know, conquering all sorts of different fiefdoms of various sorts and amassing his army larger and larger as he does so. We at one point see that he is being carried on a litter by a bunch of his followers, willing or otherwise. I'm not sure. Just a... Uh- Remind people the demon was a Mongolian witch doctor, which is a strange combination, who had found a Norn stone that Thor had dropped and now has an army of followers that are rampaging across Asia in one way or another. Probably finding communists if they're in Mongolia, but, you know, still uh, still must be stopped. Yes. Well, and they said like near Mongolia or something like that. But the thing is, the only two countries near Mongolia were the Soviet Union and China. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, they really didn't do much thinking as to where this stuff was geographically. Don Blake 
as Don Blake, shows up in the hospital room to reassure Jane that he's back. And she's just like, look, I, I don't even want to see you anymore. You just show up and then disappear for weeks at a time. I never know what the heck's going on. This is what's making me sick. This is why I'm not getting better. I'm basically having a nervous breakdown here because of you. Get out of here. Oh, and on page eight, panel five, uh, that three-quarters <laughs> view of Don Blake. I don't know what's going on with that. And this is one thing that I notice sometimes with Coletta is you'll get one or two lines that are like way too thick, and then all the rest of them are tiny, right? Yes. And that's really what we're getting here. Just the holding line on the left of his face is pretty thick, and then every other line looks like it was done with a thin architect's pen. It's <laughs> not good. I mean, often it looks like Coda is inking with an X-Acto knife instead of a pen or a brush. And <laughs> here it almost looks like more of an axe. He's going back and forth between an axe and an X-Acto knife and scratching these lines into the paper rather than using pen or brush or anything that would have any sort of fluidity to it. Instead of an axe and an X-Acto knife, I'll say basically a way too big brush and a thin repeatograph. Yeah. That's what I referred to as an architect's pen earlier, which has no variation to line weight whatsoever. Right? That's what it seems like. And I just don't know what's up with that. So Don makes a fateful decision here. He has to tell Jane the truth, even though Odin has forbidden it. So he does. And then she makes him swear that he will never leave her again. That is a stupid thing to ask him and a stupid thing to agree to. And yet here we are. Odin knows this immediately because he is omniscient. So he is like, okay, my choice is clear. There must be a reckoning. So uh, we'll leave that for a little bit later, but we know that something's going to be happening. Don Blake keeps on hearing about the demon and is racked with thoughts of this carnage that's going on on the other side of the world and this feeling that he, as Thor, needs to help. But he had just, within the last day, sworn to Jane that he would not leave her again. <laughs> this is poor Potticare. Thor has a huge reason to fight the demon, and that the demon is using the Nornstone that Thor dropped. It would seem like the obvious way to motivate Thor going after the demon is Thor realizing, oh my god, he's using the Nornstone. Instead, it's just sheer coincidence. I always feel like it's the job of potters, whether those potters be the Petzler or Stan, to come up with a way to avoid coincidences wherever possible. And there is a massive non-coincidental story possibility here that is not being used. And instead, we are just entirely relying on coincidence. But oh, well. That is a very good point. At the bottom of this page is one of those instances where I'm going to say this far dwarfs the uh, instance you were talking about on page two. Last panel on page 12, look at the ghostly image of Jane that he is <laughs> uh, conjuring in his head. What? <laughs> what is that? Don then decides, okay, I must go take care of this, even though it means I'm breaking the promise I just made to Jane. We then have another aside where we see Olympus once again. We had last seen Olympus in the annuals episode. Zeus comes and finds Hercules, who looks like he's having a gladiatorial. Is that the right word? Gladiatorial? Seems like there's one too many sure. syllables. Oh, I <laughs> He's having some sort of gladiatorial battle for sport. Try saying that 10 times fast. Zeus comes to him and says, hey, I need you to go to Earth. Uh, and it really isn't told why he's going to Earth and what's going to happen down there. But this is all we get of Hercules. That's why he's huge on the cover. <laughs> 
Yeah. Back to the demon and his hordes, and finally uh, Thor tracks him down, and it is now Thor and the demon face-to-face, and we get just a small little preview on the very last panel of their gigantic battle they're going to have, although it's this teeny tiny little panel, which sort of seems a little counterintuitive. So on the bottom of page 15, the demon has to make his voice known to the city he's besieging, and he has a just normal human bullhorn, the kind that, you know, your high school principal would use. You would think he has these demonic powers. He could just project his voice or something, or, you know, he could just have an impressive bellow where he says, fling open the gates, throw down your arms, the demon commands. For him to be using a normal human bullhorn seems very strange. It implies he has been to Walmart or something. <laughs> So, or, or whatever the Chinese or Russian equivalent of Walmart would have been in the 60s. So, just a few other little observations along the way. When Don Blake decides to show Jane that he is Thor, and Jane right now doesn't want to have anything to do with Don for the reasons already discussed, when he's about to demonstrate that he is Thor, he says to her, Look at me, Jane Foster. I command you to look. At which point, it'd be like, Buddy, read the room. She doesn't want to talk yeah. to you right now. <laughs> All right. So any other thoughts you have about that story before we move on to Tales of Asgard? I think it's good to finally tell Jane what's going on. I like how Marvel Comics has been having a lot of those sorts of developments recently where things finally move forward that have been stuck in holding patterns for four years or so. I think the demon is a good villain. I like him. I love getting Hercules back, but I don't think that they earned the right to put him on the cover yet. But I like this issue. I think it's good. All right, so let's move on to Tales of Asgard, and we've got some weird stuff going on here. It is Closer yes. Comes the Swarm. So there is a giant stone hive of Thryheim. The flying trolls of Queen Ula are being sent out to attack the ship that has, you know, finally gotten on its voyage recently. The credits are How Gallant the Script by Stan Lee, How Glorious This Artwork by Jack Kirby, How Gracious This Inking by Vince Coletta, How Come This Lettering by Artie Simak. We see Ula here giving commands, then we see the stone hive, and it looks like a beehive made of rock hanging from a tree limb made of rock. But massive, bigger than the clouds, which are hanging halfway up. So truly massive. Enough that you could have thousands of trolls inside here at once. Indeed, when we see them flooding out of the thing, they're coming out in this almost opaque chain uh, that you just can't even see through because there are so many of them clustered in that swarm. Balder, if you remember last time, finally tooted his horn, and indeed, Stanley says he did it by tooting his enchanted horn. Uh, did it, meaning get them by the uh, Utgard dragon. And this reminds me of that panel that may have originally been from su- from Spidey Super Stories. Doctor Doom and Submariner are arguing with each other, and Doctor Doom grabs one of the big, you know, horn conch shell kind of things that Submariner had. I think in the original version, he says, you know, do not blow it. Doom says, fool, Doom does as he pleases. But then it has been photoshopped to say, do not toot it. And he says, fool, Doom toots as he pleases. This, he did it by tooting this enchanted horn last issue, reminds me 
of that. Balder is completely drained and looks like he's in ill health after blowing this thing. You'll see on page three, panel one, Coletta doesn't even bother to do anything with the inside of that horn. It makes it look like there is some kind of skin stretched over the bell of the horn there. There has to be something in there to show some dimension. It's that that's just really not okay. Hogan the Grim uh, apparently is the one who keeps the elixir of life or something like that that is able to bring Balder back. Loki is still scheming. Volstag then is saying, Oh, I shall take this horn now and I will play us a merry song. And he starts blowing into it. And then everybody sees the swarm behind him and starts lifting their weapons to go ahead and face this oncoming threat. But Volstag is facing away from the swarm. And all he sees is everybody lifting their weapons as he starts blowing the horn. And he says, stop, sheath thy weapons. Surely I did not play the horn so badly which, uh, <laughs> again, is a yeah. great whole stag moment. I think that's about all I have to say about that. You know, once again, not much happening in this or happening very, very slowly, but still entertaining along the way. What do you think? This is just a very slow-moving strip. We got a full page here of the fine crawls who look very insectoid. Yes. It's got a whole page of showing where they came from. I like Hogan getting another dimension to him, and I love Falstag. And so for me, this five-page story is worth it for the Volstagg gig. Other than that, it's enjoyable enough. And once again, just crazy Kirby imagination with this whole stone hive and these insectoid trolls and stuff like that. It's like, who else is going to come up with anything like that? Indeed. Okay, I believe you were doing Tales to Astonish, yes? Yes, let's go ahead and do Tales to Astonish. Okay, so we are doing things in a different order than we used to do them, trying to mix up the good books and the bad books. So let's get to a book that is not as good, which we can intersperse. Normally, this would have been in part two. Let's go and do with Summoner and the Incredible Hulk in Tales of Astonish. Not all my power can save me. Also, Prince Neighbor the Summoner at the end of the quest. Fairly nice cover of uh, Hulk facing off against soldiers and then Namor underneath him. I'm going to go ahead and do a spoiler here. We are about to get to a big shift in Iron Man. Adam Austin, a.k.a. Gene Colan, is going to take over the art on Iron Man this month. And even though it is inked by a hodgepodge of bullpen inkers, it looks really nice. Seeing Gene Colan being inked well in the Marvel Universe for the first time, that much more painful to read him being inked by Vince Coletta in this issue, which looks awful. Now I've been reminded that Gene Colan can actually pencil and is doing a good job. We get terrible Coletta inks on Colan. We have Summoner is still facing the hordes of Faceless Ones, but can't even be bothered to fight anymore. He is almost ready to surrender when suddenly the Faceless Ones stop they, it turns out, were being commanded by Neptune. So this is a really nice plot turn. The Summoner had been on this big quest to find Neptune's trident so that he could lead his people against Krang. He had decided to abandon the quest in order to go save Dorma from the Faceless Ones. And then it turns out this was all secretly a test by Neptune to see if he really deserved the trident. And Neptune then has one of the Faceless Ones offer him the trident. I think the trident still looks terrible. Colin is not doing a good job doing a resplendent looking trident, but he goes ahead and hands it over. I was trying to think what this reminded me of. There are other stories this reminds me of where somebody is like, oh, you know, I was testing you all along. I got you to abandon your quest to save your friends. But by abandoning the quest to save your friends, you've actually secretly passed my test and you've won the quest. 
Oh, yeah. No, this sounds like a trope that we've probably seen probably at least half a dozen times in our lives, but I can't think of a single one of them. Yeah, I guess it's kind of like Harry Potter in the Goblet of Fire, where he goes back to save his friends instead of going after the Triwizard Tournament thing he was supposed to be getting. Anyway, I like this plot turn a lot. I like that he has ironically fulfilled his quest and that Neptune gives him the trident. It feels well earned. Then the old dude who was trying to go save him last issue is like, well, I don't need you to save me, but I do need you to carry the trident because I'm going to swim all the way home with Dorma in my arms. Now, in fact, even with somebody offering to carry your trident for you, trying to swim a long distance while carrying someone in your arms would be hella hard. He's got wings. They work underwater, too. But even just directing (laughs) yourself through the water with someone in your arms when you're swimming would be rather hard. Now, this is classic Cohen's flaws combining with Coletta's flaws. I can't even tell what's going on on pages seven and eight. He approaches sort of the gates of the city and he's being fought by Krang's guards with guns. But like these pages are so sketchily drawn and sketchily inked that I can't even tell what the gates of the city even kind of look like. Yeah, they look like just sort of corrugated metal topped by moose antlers. (laughs) Yes, (laughs) <laughs> until they sort of come apart on page eight. And I'm like, wait, these weren't constructed the way I thought they were. Now I can't even figure it out. Namor goes to the throne room, sees a bunch of people seemingly dead. He goes, my subjects, they have been murdered, M-U-R-D. No, they are unconscious, but how? So one of many times this month when Stanley has to make it clear that people aren't dead who look dead, Namor then fights that tank thing that Krang had last issue and defeats that. Then it turns out he's been going here not so much to defeat Krang, but because there is a sort of revival ray that he can use to bring Dorma back to life, the revitalizer ray. But then Krang sees him there, is trying to attack him. Then we get this Cohen and Kota just then run out of room on the bottom of page 12. (laughs) Suddenly, at the bottom half of the page, we have Krang is reaching for a lever to kill Namor with in some way. And then the old man shows up, says, my prince sees your trident. And we don't have enough panels left to show him throwing the trident to Namor and then Namor throwing the trident against Krang. So we sort of just skip over the part where the trident gets from the old man to Namor. It's not good comic storytelling. I think just the size of the panels is part of the problem. Oftentimes there is a little bit of a, okay, well here he has the trident and now... He has the trident, and so, okay, we can imagine he handed it off. But I will say that the panel where the trident then pins Krang's hand to the machinery of the uh, lever he was about to pull, that is really unclear what's going I had, to, I had to go back and look at that two or three times to figure out what was going on there. And part of that is probably, you know, just lots of background not having been actually inked in in the top half of the panel, but Still, it does look like they were really cramped for room, and this is some stuff that could have really used a little bit more breathing room to feel a little bit more epic, and they just don't get it. And they could have just wrapped up the issue a little early. They could have just had, it's going to be Namor versus Krang next issue, but oh, here comes someone with the trident. Or they could have just left out that underwhelming full-page splash on page four. (laughs) <laughs> where yeah. where he gets the trident. It's like, yeah, you didn't really make that a resplendent image. So you could have just gotten rid of that and given yourself a whole extra page to work with here. We've, we've noted this in the past with Cohen that uh, the pacing is off. So this is a perfectly okay issue. After seeing Cohen well inked on Iron Man this month, which we're about to discuss in our next episode, really painful to see him so poorly inked. 
spy credit here. But the plot, I like the plot here. I really like the plot twist of the way he ironically fulfills the quest and really sort of brings together a bunch of elements that felt very squishy in the last couple of episodes and snaps everything into focus nicely. I like that we're building to this huge confrontation with Krang and that he now has all the elements he needs and he's starting to save his love at the same time. I like the plotting on this issue a lot. I just am not a fan of the art. Uh, and the pacing, you said. So that's part of the plotting. And so the you do have you do have yeah. a bit of an issue with the plotting and just how it's paced. So let's move on to the Hulk. So then the Hulk, the back half of the book, we get Story Stanley, layouts Jay Kirby, illustrations M. DeMeo, who is really Mike Esposito, lettering S. Rosen, enjoying that's your job, Pussycat. I think the song What's New Pussycat was a popular song of that of that moment, was it not? Yes, and movie. Song and movie, What's New Pussycat, uh, okay. were right. popular at the time. Woody Allen, I think, wrote the screenplay, and he was at Warren Beatty's apartment, and Warren Beatty, he found out, would answer the phone, What's New Pussycat? Every time he answered his phone, he's like, you know, I got to use that. I'm kind of creeped out by the idea of Woody Allen and Warren Beatty both just hanging out together. That just seems <laughs> like a bad idea. <laughs> yeah. All right. Go on. So then the Hulk is standing over the leader's dead body. He has the Watcher's fear. He decides to leap away. Now, here we get, I think, always a problem in plotting. Like, what is going to happen next? What they do is they just hang a lantern on this, and it's like, Hulk has no idea what's going to happen next. He, he has Bruce Banner's brain, but he's got the Hulk's personality. He's totally directionless in life. He doesn't know what he wants to do next. He doesn't know what he wants to do with this fear. And he sort of just decides, well, I'm going to see what it's all about myself. I might as well. I've got nothing to lose. And he decides to put this fear on himself. I always like characters to have strong motivation to do whatever they do. I don't yeah. like characters taking major actions for low motivation just because they might as well. Let me point out that, A, they do make it clear that he is jumping out of the original Italian piazza that um, that the leader had been in. And then the way I see it, he doesn't know what to do, so he goes for a stroll. And how does the Hulk go for a stroll? He goes jumping. He goes country hopping, which was what the Hulk was doing when we first started collecting the Hulk back in the 80s. And it's one of my favorite things of his. Yeah. Meanwhile, in... America, they have built another huge weapon of banners called the T-Gun. I wonder why Banner called it a T-Gun. What does the T stand for? It's anybody's guess. We won't know until Ross's specialists actually fire it. So they've built a weapon with absolutely no idea what it does or even what the T stands for. But they're like, hey, if we've got a plan for a weapon. We have to build it. And heaven forbid we test it in a non-battle setting, which they do not do. Meanwhile, Rick Jones is in prison. He's like, hey, I got to call me and Bruce Banner's secret keeper, Lyndon Baines Johnson. I have to call to Johnson. And they're like, uh, no kid, we're not going to let you call the president. Meanwhile, while the Hulk has this spear on his head, he does not gain all the knowledge of the universe. He only suddenly gets the ability to hear Rick saying, only the White House can help me. Someone's got to tell the president. And Hulk is like, oh, I'm going to abandon the spear. Forget all about it. We see the Watcher reclaim it. And he's like, I have to help Rick. So I will go to Washington. Like, well, Rick thought he could help himself by going to Washington, but you can't help Rick by going to Washington. If you want to help Rick, you have to go to the desert Southwest and free Rick from prison. It's not going to help Rick to sort of do what Rick wanted anyway. But the Hulk decides to go to Washington. Well, of course, we then see the Hulk jump across the ocean 
even more clearly than it was last time, which is dumb as all get out. They do imply that he's going basically the polar route here. Yes. It says later at a far north coastal radar tracking station. So he isn't just jumping from the Azores to Bermuda and then <laughs> to DC. <laughs> Right. There was no reason to ever put him in Italy in the first place. Like if the leader had just had a base in the American Southwest, as we had seen before, then they would not have ended up in this crazy situation where he has to jump across the ocean. Poor potting. The Hulk then goes to the White House and it turns out they've got the T-gun there ready to protect the White House. Like, how did you know the Hulk was going to go there? Why do you have the T-gun set up there? Or did you just have the T-gun set up there to protect the White House from any threat? And then the Hulk happens to show up there. Anyway, they fired the T-gun on the Hulk. And then the next page before I read the speech bubbles, I was like, oh my God, the T-gun destroyed Washington, D.C. And it's wrecked and in rubble now. And like, that's a shocking plot development. But then it turns out, no, the Hulk has been thrown into the future. And the T and T-gun stood for time. And the Hulk is here in the future in the rubble of Washington. And I wish that Bruce Banner, a.k.a. the Hulk, had not figured that out so quickly. I wish that he had thought, oh, my God, the gun destroyed the whole city. But no, he figures it out instantly. Banner never meant for it to be used. It was just an experiment. He was only trying to learn one thing. He wanted to know if a sudden blast, which altered the light waves around a person, could send him into a different time. And now we have proved he was right. It could. It has done it to me. And then the Hulk quickly gets attacked by a future army. And I like future armies. I like this month's adventures in which they're fighting future armies. And I like seeing the Hulk fighting a big science fiction army that is attacking him. I'm loving it. I like the T-Gun. I like the Hulk in the future fighting future armies. I think this is a good eventful issue that moves the Hulk from one exciting situation to another. The only thing I disliked about this issue is I never like reading the words might as well in any story I read. I like heroes to have strong motivations to do what they do. But that's my only concern with this issue. That is fair enough. The whole idea about, oh, we're going to build this thing from Banner's plans, and we know so little about what's going on that we don't even have any idea what kind of thing it's going to do. <laughs> it's like, as somebody who's worked on various projects of making stuff, you know that the first, at least the first one, possibly the first six or more, are going to not work because you have to actually see it in person and know what it's doing to fix it. But it's a fun plot device for something where you're assuming that your main readers are like 10 years old. Steve, we've talked to you about laser spinning before. I realized <laughs> you were coming from a place of privilege and you were like, I'm going to laser spin the way lasers work to the U.S. government. But you need to have a bit more humility and not always attempt to laser spin. Um, I, am, but- I am literally paid to laser spin. not in this context but it's hard to turn it back off yeah well the first time they ever fire the gun it is in combat they're like let's fire this gun for the first time ever and find out what it does not the best yeah at one point when uh the hulk heads off to do what rick requested through his telepathic communication the hulk is thinking it won't take me long to reach washington and i'm like how long does a commercial airline flight take to get from italy to washington Washington, D.C. Something like six hours, five hours, six hours. Is he traveling faster than a commercial jet (laughs) with his leaps across? Uh, I guess maybe so. I guess that's what happens. And the watcher thinks to himself once again, I have sworn never to interfere in the affairs of others. And yet 
It's like, does he ever does he ever say that first statement without following it up with an and yet? I don't think he's ever said the first without saying the second. It's just, no. So I want to check something with you about the difference between the original and the Marvel Unlimited version. We may not have mentioned in a while, but I'm reading scans of the original issues and Steve is reading the Marvel Unlimited recolored version. Last page of the Hulk story, first panel. Could you read me the yellow caption that's there? Exactly one second later, the Hulk learns that the world he has landed in is far from being a dead world. On this one, it says exactly one second later, the Hulk learns that the world, blank for the rest of the line, being a dead world. Which, uh, once again, I'm assuming there was some sort of weird paste-up issue that was there. The adhesives they use to put these things on wear out. I'm guessing that has to be what's going on here. That's so strange. Yeah, yeah. So let us hurl on to our inevitable conclusion here. X-Men, number 16. This is continuing the Sentinel story that we've been going through. I should point out here on the cover of the X-Men number 16, The Supreme Sacrifice, we had a big problem last issue where Master Mold's room didn't have a high enough ceiling and... Even here on the cover of X-Men number 16, it is pretty clear that the ceiling is not only not tall enough for Master Mold to stand up and it's not even tall enough for him to sit down in. It does not line up at all in terms of how high the ceiling needs to be for Master Mold. Dude, Master Mold, you're creating your own headquarters. Give yourself more of the ceiling. Uh, you deserve it. Come on. Yeah. You're worth it. Okay, so the supreme sacrifice in which a life is lost, a battle won. And they are pretty sparse with the credits this time, presumably just because there isn't much room down there. Story, Stan Lee, layouts, Jack Kirby, penciling, Jay Gavin, actually Werner Roth, delineation, Dick Ayers, and lettering, Art Simak. So I'm not a big fan of the art in this issue. I don't think that Kirby, Gavin, and Ayers are working together very well. The art is okay. It's passable. Yeah, I, I didn't have a problem with it, but yeah, it didn't jump out at me as fantastic either. When last we left off, the X-Men were all held prisoner inside the Sentinel's hidden fortress, which is basically just disguised as a hill in a field, and then it can raise up like an elevator or lower back down. Professor X is the only one who isn't inside, and of course, he doesn't have use of his legs. So he literally drags his body out to the nearest highway, (laughs) desperately, painfully, disregarding the agony of his injured body, the crippled mutant tirelessly crawls inch after inch. And then he basically starts mentally manipulating these two guys who happen to be driving along Think, slow down, stop 100 yards ahead, and then has them lift him into their car and then has them drive him to the TV studio where this whole thing started. Like you would like, think just, hey, there is a crippled person on the side of the road. You would think that would be enough to get them to stop and help. You would not have to mentally command them to do it. The odd thing is on the page before, you can see his wheelchair behind him. So you would think he could have just gotten back into his wheelchair, but presumably it is more wrecked than it looks. Well, also, presumably, it's not really made to go over rough terrain. Right. So the X-Men are all held inside this heavy gravity. They call it a globe, although it's clearly an oblate spheroid. I mean, come on. And at one point, the, the angel is inside saying, I can't even fly to the top. My wings can hardly flap in here. And he's saying that as he is hovering near the top. 
which <laughs> yes okay they can't make it out of this sphere and they have lots of tries and they figure they have to wait until the sentinels try to open it for some reason and then they'll be able to try to get out trask is still being blackmailed by master mold to make more sentinels to take over the earth or else he will completely obliterate the nearest human city thereby killing everybody within this is really a choice where each one of them will cause untold death and destruction. So he is not sure what to do at this point. He's saying, okay, I'll go ahead and do it. Professor X then has these two poor guys who are presumably headed somewhere and maybe expected by somebody. He is now having them carry him around in a regular, looks like a kitchen chair as a litter (laughs) on the bottom of page seven. It's like, God, let yeah. these guys go. Like, what are you doing? So he came back here to figure out why that one sentinel collapsed. And he's trying to figure it out. It turns out that there is a crystal products building that has a new has a new skyscraper that has a giant crystal hung in it. Professor X realizes that's the direction of the headquarters. So that crystal must be interfering with the communications. And they make it clear here. It says, if we moved him, the Sentinel, again, he'd come to life once he was away from the, from the window. Professor X says, exactly. I bring that up because I'm going to point out a place where that is a problem in a few minutes. I gotta say, this is a truly bizarre plot term. The fact that it turns out there is a crystal products building which has the world's hugest crystal dangling in the inside of the building, and that is what's causing the Sentinel to die, is a truly bizarre plot turn. Oh, yeah. If we want to give Kirby credit for that, or whoever we want to give credit to for that, that is, uh, it's okay. (laughs) All right. There's a giant 20 story high crystal dangling from a building nearby. Okay. Yes. Okay, indeed. So on page nine, the Sentinels are going to then place Beast in the same heavy gravity little shape thing here. I will not call it a globe. But (laughs) the Sentinels recognize that this is a dangerous moment for them. So they're all surrounding them, waiting to fight the X-Men back into their chamber if they try to get out. But the X-Men get out anyway. And they're having some nice Sentinel fighting abilities. I noticed that at one point, Marvel Girl tried tries to force back one of the sentinels that's attacking and she can't force his main body back but she can manipulate his arms and pull him off balance and the other kids are like hey genie needs some help let's move but before they can get there she has actually succeeded in knocking him down and yeah. <laughs> and warren is just says Sure you did, honey, but we'll make sure he stays down. <laughs> I'm like, yo, yeah. man, come, come on. The Sentinels all fire their stun rays at once, and you see the uh, X-Men all being sent helter-skelter through the air with a big thoom. The Sentinels are going to move in to finish them, but then they all collapse. And it turns out that's because Professor X has convinced the New York police to commandeer this gigantic crystal off of that skyscraper, tie it to three separate helicopters, which are then in tandem lifting it and carrying it out to this point that it looks like nothing is. (laughs) Now, granted, he does have mind control abilities, so that may explain that, but it's a big ask. 
It, it is. Well, and then one of the cops, and once again, this is a kind of thing where they never quite give this up, even though it makes no sense. The cop is thinking to himself, we all thought that guy was off his rocker till we got the word from Washington itself to do whatever he said. I wonder whatever makes him such a VIP. I never heard of him. And indeed, I don't think we ever find out why it is that somebody in Washington is watching out for him, do we? Has that ever been revealed? No. Not really. Yeah, no. But Chris Claremont picked it back up every here and there when he started writing the book as well. And they picked it up in the X-Men movies in um, First Class. First Class. Once the Sentinels collapse, the X-Men go back into action. They are trying to find Master Mold, who is currently starting to mint his new larger army of Sentinels. When Trask sees that they are being created, he realizes he cannot do this. And so he goes and starts smashing the equipment, ends up setting off an explosion. The X-Men say, we're too late. The Master Mold will never menace the humanity again. It's like, oh, that's adorable. That says, uh, someone's done our job for us. Dr. Trask, wasn't he in there? If he was, he's beyond any help now, which indeed he has sacrificed his life. Iceman is being hurt by some heat that's coming from this explosion, sort of passes out, basically. The Beast thinks it's imperative I carry him out, but he's too slippery to hold in my hands. So then he somehow is walking on his hands cradling Iceman the backs of his knees in a way that it looks like that looks way more precarious than holding him <laughs> yes. in your hand. Like that, <laughs> that does not work for me at all. I think that even if I were a 10 year old boy, I would be like, wait a minute, that doesn't help. There have been tens of thousands of years of human evolution to make hands much more useful than the insides of your knees for carrying things. <laughs> Yes. And Gene, once again, is able to mentally pick the locks to get them all out of the fortress as it is being destroyed. So uh, once again, Gene getting much more capable as this stuff goes on, although the guys are still being quite condescending to her. So that's more or less where we leave it. The X-Men have escaped. They see the whole thing blow up. We see the husk of Master Mold and the corpse of Boulevard Trask under the rubble. Of course, we will see Master Mold again. Uh, I don't think we see this Trask again at any point in the future. And then we just get a little teaser of what they're going to be meeting when they get back to the X-Mansion. We see just a shadow. Uh, and I think that this is Magneto, is it not? Yeah, he's back. So we are going to have more Magneto next issue, which is going to be, dare I say it, Neato. Yes. So then they use Crypto for the moral of the comic, which is perhaps the truth will one day be known. But until that time, it lies buried beneath countless tons of rubble buried in the breast of Dr. Boulevard Trask, whose last earthly sacrifice brought the work of a lifetime crashing down around him, whose last earthly lesson proved to be, beware the fanatic. Too often his cure is deadlier by far than the evil he denounces. So we get a nice little moral here. This is a good story about the dangers of fanaticism, in this case, anti-mutant fanaticism, but all sorts of fanaticism and the way in which he created a cure that was deadlier than the disease. Yes. I like the story. I think this was a very strong three-parter with not great art, but my biggest problem with this issue is that the X-Men turn out to be totally useless. Like the X-Men are inside the headquarters going like, how do we defeat the Sentinels? And then it turns out that 
Dr. Xavier flying in a helicopter overhead really defeats the Sentinels. And then Dr. Bolivar Trask finishes the job. He defeats Master Mold. So they're like, okay, then let's save ourselves. And it turns out (laughs) to be the epic story of the X-Men managing to barely save themselves while Professor Xavier and Dr. Trask actually save the world. But it is fine. And this is a perfectly good issue. Yeah, I've liked this whole three-part arc. A couple other things that I missed when going through the issue. Last panel on page four is another example of the guys condescending to Jean when clearly she is becoming one of the most capable of them. Bobby says, the prof always warned you about overtaxing your telekinetic power. It's like, let's get you to the fainting couch or something like that. And then Warren at one point thinks to himself, I always felt superior to the others because I could fly. But now I realize how useless my wings can be at times. It's like, you're just now noticing this. And you (laughs) actually thought that you were superior to them? Yes. Really? So many times Warren has suffered for lack of an offensive weapon. Yes, he is finally beginning to wise up to that fact. Uh, Syke says at one point to Bobby, who is denigrating himself, Syke says to him, don't ever say that again, boy. You did all any man could do. You tried your best. And then Bobby says, you called me a man for the first time. And it's like, yeah, but he just called you boy in the previous (laughs) sentence. Uh, Right. So when they're carrying the giant crystal to defeat all of the Sentinels, one of the folks in the helicopters is saying, if Xavier's theory is correct, this giant crystal, which we took from the tower of the building, will cause all the Sentinels in the fortress below to collapse and be rendered harmless. Do you remember the panel I pointed out earlier? where they specifically said, so if we moved this sentinel to where it wasn't blocked from the signals by this crystal, it would come back to life and start doing its stuff again? And he says, exactly. Well, they just took the crystal and moved it. You would think that that sentinel would have gotten up and started raining havoc once again. So yeah, I enjoyed this three-issue arc. Yeah, you're right. The art is serviceable. It would be nice to have it better than serviceable, but I will take serviceable over disappointing. Unfortunately, we are about to have Kirby leave even layouts on this book, and Roth is going to flounder without him, and the art is going to be downright bad for about 40 issues, which is a heartbreaker. I don't know if I'd quite say bad. I think it's once again serviceable, but we will see that as we go forward. That is it for now. Usually, Matt and I keep on recording the next episode moments after we get done. Due to schedule issues this time, we are not doing that. And so we will come back and record the other episode later. So yeah, thank you, everybody, for being here. As always, we appreciate it. Please remember to rate and review us on the podcatcher of your choice. And have fun, read some good comics, and stay safe out there. Indeed. Thanks for coming out, guys. We will see you soon. Thanks for listening to Marvel Reread Club. Please subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. Your reviews and ratings are a great help and always appreciated. We love hearing from you. Go to MarvelRereadClub.com to find notes and join the discussion about this episode. We're also on Facebook and Instagram. See you next time.